0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Your family, your community, your country,
1: your responsibility. Be the best citizen you can be. Click on the Leaders A banner on this website to find out about your rights. And responsibilities The Naked Scientist On Talk Radio 702 and
0: 567 Cape Talk With Reedy Clubby
1: Without much ado, let's say good morning to the Naked Scientist Chris Smith Lovely to have you with us, Chris, welcome
0: Hi Reedy
1: Thank you Let's start with a question from last week There's something that you wanted to clarify or respond to from last week
0: Yes, last week we were talking about temperature sensors in cars and wind chill factors, and I got a bit excited when I was answering the question, and I jumped a couple of steps, which meant that some people were a bit confused. So I'd just like to run over that so that we make sure we haven't left anyone in the dark, uh, me included. So mm-hmm. the way it works, what is wind chill? first of all? Well, the reason that when you're standing in a breeze it feels cold is because your body is warmer than the air around you. So your body is losing energy, heat, to that air, and that's why you feel that air is colder than you. But if the air isn't moving very much, then quite quickly you get a blanket of warm air around you, so the rate at which heat leaves the body slows down. But if the wind blows, then it carries that blanket of warm air from around you away, replacing it with more cold air again, so you lose more heat from your body more quickly, and that's the wind chill effect. So the question was, if you have a temperature sensor on your car and it's recording the outside temperature, why doesn't it record a lower temperature when the car's going along in the same way that you would feel colder if you stuck your arm out of the car window? And I suggested that one of the uh, reasons that uh, this doesn't occur is for the simple reason that the temperature sensor is shrouded in the car. Uh, The crucial step I omitted in saying that is that the reason they shroud the sensor is that if something is damp... So if you have cold, if you have wet clothes on, the reason you feel cold mm. is because when water evaporates, you get something called the latent heat of evaporation. The water molecules steal extra energy from the thing they're on in order to break away from the surface as a water pool and turn into droplets of, or con- sorry, water vapor in the atmosphere. And that stealing of energy takes extra energy away from the thing that they're evaporating from, making it colder. That's why if you put a drop of alcohol on your skin, it feels much colder, because it's evaporating. So they shroud the sensor to make sure it doesn't get wet, because then it would have a wind chill effect. But assuming the sensor's perfectly dry, then you wouldn't need to shield it, because all it's doing is recording the average energy of the air, which is the temperature, and therefore it wouldn't be affected with whether that air is moving or not, with the car moving. It's to keep it dry, and that's the the crucial step. And I'm sorry if I left some people a bit confused by my answer last week.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Chris. All is forgiven. John, Robbie wanted me to ask you, why is it that during an eclipse the sun and the moon are almost the same size they fit perfectly uh next to each other even though the sun is that much larger than the moon
0: well um i don't know a hundred percent but I think the answer to the, that i've seen uh provided for this is that it's a fluke. Um, the Sun is obviously a long way away, 100 million miles or so off to the Sun. The Moon is much closer, 350,000 kilometres, um, and it just so happens that despite the fact that the Moon is much, much smaller than the Sun, because the Moon is relatively closer to the Earth, it's therefore relatively bigger, the Sun much further away, therefore relatively smaller, and by fluke, the size or disk of the moon is roughly the same size as the disk of the sun at that mm. distance, and so one overlaps the other.
1: Okay, all right, John, if you're listening, there's your answer. Let's talk about uh, today's stories, food cost of climate change, and I think we should all be paying attention to that. Chris?
0: Yeah, well, it's a big worry, isn't it, when people talk about climate change and they talk about the impact that this may have on rainfall and they talk about the impact on our lives but very often people don't then say well what impact will this have on our ability to grow food we know that there might be a problem but no one's actually been able to put any numbers on it until now and there's a really nice paper this week it's in the journal science it's by david labelle and his colleagues he's from stanford university in california and what this group have managed to overcome is the big challenge of trying to do a, a study like this because in trying to consider F- uh, the food production or yield rates for various crops around the world over time, you have to disentangle any effects of climate change from other things like technology, mechanisation, and uh, things like fertiliser use. So how do you do that? Well, they have built this massive mathematical statistical model. They've fed in data for crop production on wheat maize, rice and soy all around the world for the last 30 years and then also taken into account rainfall data and temperature data. And what they can show unequivocally is that in all of these, pretty much all, apart from North America actually, in pretty much all crop growing areas in the world, there's been an inexorable increase significantly, statistically speaking, in temperature in crop growing areas, in crop growing seasons, all around the world, and as a consequence of this, the production of wheat is down 5.5% mm. on what it should be, and the production of um, maize is down 3.5% on what it should be. Rice and soya are just about hanging in the balance at the moment. And that means that we're paying at least 6.5% more for the food in our shopping baskets than we should be, based on if there was no climate change signal. So the point they're making is that this is only in the short term... And it's only over a very modest change in temperatures, about 0.13 degrees C increase per decade. So very small increases in temperature have actually translated into quite a big decrease in crop yield. And in the future, if climate change accelerates, then we could see even more pressure especially coupled with the fact that the population is rising, only at about 1% per year, which doesn't sound like much, but actually mm. that means the world population will double every 70 years and consequently we could be facing uh, real big food shortages in the future or paying much higher prices than we currently are if we don't pay attention to this.
1: It's very clear then then climate change, Chris, is really starting to hit our pockets and maybe when it starts doing that, that's when people will take it seriously because clearly we're incurring large economic and health costs as a result.
0: Well, the point they make is that the signal has largely been masked because all around the world, everywhere that people are growing crops, yields are actually going up. And actually what he says in his paper, David Bell points out, that actually they would be going up a lot more if it weren't for climate change. So although yields are up they're not going to carry on going up like that forever because climate change is going to erode those growths in yield until we get to a point where we don't achieve any further increases in yield but we've still got the world population going up and we've got to feed them.
1: Now, tell me about these tiny creature, uh, creatures called uh, jellyfish.
0: Yeah, well sometimes you just see a paper which you think oh, that's a beautiful piece of research. Mm-hmm. Um, people who live in certain parts of the world will be well acquainted with creatures called box jellyfish. They're absolutely tiny but in some cases they can actually deliver a lethal sting but then they're actually planktivorous they eat plankton little marine plants um which photosynthesize they trap the energy from the sun in bright sunny spots in the water but they these jellyfish live in the roots of mangrove trees in mangrove swamps so where the plants and, and trees come down into the water's edge and if they go too far from the water's edge there won't be any plankton there for them to eat so they would starve so how do they make sure they always stay near to the edge of the coast where these roots are where they live and it turns out that when scientists have studied these things in the past they have found that they have eyes each of the uh, faces of the four sides of this jellyfish box on its bell has got six eyes and two of those eyes are actually lensed on each side they're just like the eyes that you and i have they have little lenses that can focus light and so these jellyfish, with their 24 eyes, they must be there for some reason. So what a group of researchers in um, Copenhagen, University of Copenhagen, this is Anders Garm and his colleagues have done, is to try and work out what those jellyfish are seeing and if it really helps them. So they positioned a camera underwater looking upwards uh, in the same orientation as the jellyfish's eyes would be and took photographs of the skyline above where the jellyfish live. And they found that because of the reason that water bends light when it goes into it, this is called refraction, the jellyfish eye would actually have a 180-degree field of view of the world. And they then said, well, over what sorts of distances could they see stuff? And so they made some pictures of the outline of the canopy of the trees above where the jellyfish live, and they realised that at distances up to eight metres away, the jellyfish's eyes would be good enough to resolve the difference between the sky and the tree line. And so they they hypothesized that perhaps the jellyfish were using the outline of the trees to as a, as a visual cue to find their way back to the beach where they live. And so then they did a really cunning experiment where they built this little floating tank, put some jellyfish in, and moved the tank at different distances out from the side of the coast, uh, from naught to 8 metres away, and they watched where the jellyfish swam, and at distances up to 8 metres, the jellyfish all swam to the side of the tank, closest to the shoreline, because they could obviously see where these trees were, and the reason for doing it in a tank, is that it meant that they could isolate the water in the tank from the water in the sea so the jellyfish weren't smelling their way home they were seeing their way home, and so they say it's pretty amazing to think that something just 1 centimetre across, with no brain to speak of, can nonetheless have very high profile, very high level highly evolved eyes which it uses to help it navigate and this is just a jellyfish
1: okay thank you very much very interesting story okay guys we are taking your calls what do you want to ask the naked scientist this morning on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702 we are taking your sms's as well 31702 and 31567 the naked scientist on talk radio 702 and 567 cape talk with reedy clubby and straight to the lines we go. Let's start with you, Audrey. You're calling us from Strand. Good morning to you. Good morning, really. Mm. Um, recently, I think it was the last week, there was a statement that scientists had discovered that the level of the sea is rising at a much faster rate than they had expected. Um, I'd like to know it's just because of a faster melting of the poles and
0: where and how the measurement is taken. Hello, Audrey. Hi there. Um, Yes, the the evidence is that sea level is rising. I'm not aware of evidence showing that it's changing at, at a rate different to that which we had anticipated. There are two reasons why the sea level will rise. One is that as the world warms up, then the water warms up, and so it expands a bit. Sea level is actually lower than it should be for the temperatures we are having at the moment because of volcanoes, historically. There were some quite nice studies done in the last five years showing that because of past big volcanic eruptions, like Krakatoa, for example, in the 1800s, this puts enormous amounts of dust into the atmosphere, and the dust screens out some of the sun's energy, which means that the Earth is actually a bit colder than it should do or should be, and therefore the ocean is a bit colder than it should be, therefore sea level is a bit lower than it should be and we're still surfing that cooling legacy from 100 years ago plus. The other reason that sea levels are rising is that as the Earth warms up then ice, which is on land, and specifically you've got Antarctica, which is a solid landmass with ice on it, and Greenland, which is a, a landmass with ice on it. As that ice melts, it will flow as water into the ocean, and because it's not floating at the time, it's therefore displacing any water until it's in the ocean, and therefore as that ice melts, it will increase sea level. If the polar ice cap in the north melts that doesn't actually contribute to uh, a rise in sea level for the simple reason that it's already floating, and you can do this experiment yourself. If you take a glass of water, or a glass of ice cubes, actually, fill it up to the top with water around the ice cubes, as the ice cubes melt, the glass will not overflow, because the ice cubes are made of water, and they're pushing out of the way as much water as their own weight. So when they melt, they just turn into an equivalent volume of water. So the northern pole is not a problem, but ice on land masses is. And as the Earth warms, that ice will melt, and this will therefore displace or rise sea level. It's going up by about half a millimetre a year. Greenland's contributing something like 150-plus cubic kilometres of ice melt every single year at the moment. It's huge. And the reason we know that is that there was a lovely experiment done from space. There's a pair of satellites called GRACE. There are two satellites that work together, one a little bit behind the other, and they're orbiting around the Earth, and one is measuring the distance to the other one using a laser beam. And as the satellites go around the Earth, as they pass over bits of the Earth which are heavier, they've got more mass because they've got a huge amount of ice on them, for example, one of the satellites will be accelerated slightly faster before the other one, and they can pick up that tiny difference and use that to work out what sort of land mass they're passing over. And by making serial measurements over the same Earth's surfaces all the time, you can work out how much ice is melted, which is how they're able to weigh the amount of ice being lost from Greenland, for example.
1: Thank you very much, Audrey, for your question. We go from you to Amber in Kemsby. Hi. Hi. Uh, just a quick question with regard to organ donation. Does it make a difference if you say a female and you're donating a heart to a male? I mean, it does it, you know, oh, female that's a hormones, very nice one. that kind of thing. I like. Okay. That. Thank you, Alison, on the radio.
0: Thank you, Amber. Hello, Amber. Uh, when people are matching organs, what they're matching up are what are called the major histocompatibility complexes, the MHC molecules. These are special molecules that cells use to tell the immune system who they belong to, and when a cell is active it presents on its surface in the context of these special molecules. They're a bit like a, a hand held aloft displaying something, these molecules. They tell the immune system, look, this is what I'm doing inside my cell, and then cells from the immune system come along and they inspect those markers, and they see if they match up with what the body recognises as part of itself, and if it doesn't agree, then they presume that that cell is a foreign invader, a bacterium, uh, a cell beh- pretending to be part of us, or a virally infected cell, and those cells are attacked and destroyed in a number of ways. Antibodies can lock onto these cells and damage them, and there are cytotoxic, cell-killing T-cells, lymphocytes, which will also do that. So when a person has an organ transplant, the transplant team will match up as closely as they can the markers these chemical tags on the surfaces of cells between individuals but actually you can do that for a man and a woman because uh, the genes which tell us whether we're male or female are not linked to whether we're male or female so you can have a man's heart going into a lady or a man's liver going into a lady and vice versa there are some exceptions though which is that men are generally bigger than women and vice versa and so you need to get an organ which will a fit and b be metabolically up to handling a bigger or smaller body so you couldn't put a gigantic liver into a tiny lady or if you put a lady's smaller heart into a massive hulk of a man that heart would really struggle to provide uh, what was the output necessary for sustaining such a big body so it doesn't just come down to matching um, biochemically there are also important physiological points to bear in mind too but in theory there's not a problem with going between sexes like that
1: let's go to Jabu in Lone Hill hi there Jabu
0: Hi, Chabu. Um, and Hi, Ruby, and the doctor. I just want to find out. I mean, like, um, if the bike, the motorbike, is in motion, it doesn't doesn't fall, as opposed to when it's in static, it's not in motion. Just want to understand the, the physical. I mean, the the scientific explanation for that.
1: So, Thanks. a motorbike not falling when in motion, but when stationary, it falls off. Oh, okay.
0: Hi, Jimmy. Interestingly, this was the subject of a paper in the journal Science in the last two or three weeks where researchers in Germany built a bike um, which was designed to test some of these theories as to why bikes stay up. There are two prevailing theories. One is that the wheels, when they go round, have a gyroscopic balancing effect. And if you have ever played with a gyroscope, what's happening is you've got a big spinning disc, which spins very fast, and if you try to tilt the gyroscope in any one direction, it resists your ability to move it. And that's because, if you think about it, you've got a disc spinning. If you give the disc a push in one direction, very quickly it's actually gone round to the other side and is now pushing back the other way. So the two effects cancel each other out. And so people have said maybe a bicycle balances itself via this gyroscopic effect. Uh, The other possibility is that the way in which the forks at the front of the bike are constructed mean that whenever the bike turns in a certain direction or tries to fall over the wheel the front wheel steers into the direction the bike is trying to fall and it's a bit like if you balance say a big long broom handle on the palm of your hand you can keep the broom handle vertical by moving your hand underneath the broom handle so your hand is always moving towards the direction the broom handle is trying to fall and this keeps it balanced and and that's sort of what the bike is doing. What the researchers in Germany found is that by building a bike in which they had two wheels one above the other on each side with one wheel rotating the opposite direction to the one below it but only the one below it in contact with the floor um, they could therefore cancel out the gyroscopic effect and their bicycle went in a straight line beautifully. So the gyroscope effect is probably not much of a consequence for bike stability it's much more likely it's to do with how you construct and craft those forks at the front which uh, make sure that the bike steers itself into its direction of fall in order to keep itself stable but to a certain extent there are still some unknowns there um, and we just don't (laughs) know how it how it is we can ride a bike
1: last question from flora in an sms she wants to know please ask the naked scientist what causes epilepsy what's going on in the brain
0: when you have epilepsy you have groups of nerve cells uh in a region of the brain which is known as the epileptic focus, which display abnormal electrical activity. So the brain is an electrical organ. Nerve cells talk to each other by firing off electrical impulses, which then send messages from one nerve cell to the other. And normally the activity of these nerve cells is kept in check, so they only fire in a certain discrete pattern. But when people develop epilepsy, and this can occur because of, say, pressure on nerve cells caused by a tumor or damage to nerve cells caused by lack of oxygen or an injury to the brain caused by say uh, trauma from a car accident or an object falling onto the head if if nerve cells are injured they can begin to manifest these abnormal patterns of electrical activity and sometimes you can get these patterns of activity building up and it's a bit like if you waft your hand backwards and forwards in your bath at the right rate you can get the water sloshing backwards and forwards in the bath in such a way that the waves build up and build up and build up and then splosh onto the floor so in the brain you can get patterns or resonances of activity in this epileptic focus Mm. where the area kindled itself and the waves build up and build up and build up until suddenly you've got enough activity there that it spills over into other bits of the brain and starts making nerve cells in other bits of the brain begin to misbehave and fire abnormally too this can then spread across the whole brain it makes the person lose consciousness depending upon the type of epilepsy they have, they may have then an overt tonic-clonic seizure and this can go on for a number of seconds to minutes until the person then or the brain then resets itself the person's then sleepy for a little bit afterwards and then they wake up and they're back to normal and luckily this can be very well controlled with drugs which damp down the activity of nerve cells a little bit and this stops that epileptic focus from gaining control of all the brain electrical activity like this so often, if at all.
1: As always, Chris, we really love chatting to you. Let's do that again next week.
0: Really, thank you very much. Have a great weekend, everybody, and thanks for listening.
1: Bye-bye, bye-bye. And that will be available as a podcast.